You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Welcome. I am Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network. In Ukraine, 2023 saw a combative and deadly start. While Kyiv fended off much of a barrage of drone attacks from Russia on the capital city on New Year's night, Ukraine's armed forces hit a military base in the city of Makivka in the occupied region of Donetsk. They destroyed a school building where Russian soldiers were stationed and ammunition had apparently been stored in the building, which detonated when the barracks were hit. The missile strike was one of the deadliest attacks on the Russian forces. The number of Russian soldiers killed is disputed. Ukraine claims as many as 400 soldiers were killed, while Russian Defense Ministry said 63. The occupied Donetsk region where the strikes occurred is in Donbass, a heavily industrialized region of eastern Ukraine. The area became disputed in 2014 when ties to Russia were cultivated, resulting in two breakaway states in Donetsk and Luhansk, challenging the authority of the Ukrainian government. Warfare over the territory has been ongoing since 2014. The battle for control of the Donbass provinces continues between the armed forces of Russia and Ukraine since Russia's invasion last year, with large parts of the Donbass area occupied by Russia. When Ukrainian President Zelensky traveled to the U.S. to ask for support from Congress, he symbolically began his journey by visiting his soldiers at the front in Donbass. Today we hear about the Donbass with Dr. Mikhail Alexiev, Professor of International Relations at San Diego State University. Dr. Alexiev is also currently collaborating with the Institute of Sociology of Ukraine's National Academy of Sciences, surveying and researching Ukrainian opinions in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass area. Later in the conversation, Dr. Alexiev shares thoughts on this historic moment in global politics that surrounds the recent visit of Ukrainian President Zelensky to the USA when he asked for help. Dr. Mikhail Alexiev, you are somebody who is from Ukraine, also from Russia, right? Well, I was born in Ukraine and then my parents moved to Russia. I lived there, went to school there, I migrated between Russia and Ukraine. I went to Ukraine main university called Taras Shevchenko, Kiev State University. Then I worked uh, in Ukraine as a journalist. Those were amazing days of covering the end of the Soviet Union, pushing the frontiers and covering the Kremlin, truly opening up. And after that, I moved to academic studies. I got my PhD at the University of Washington in Seattle. And after 2014, I refocused my attention on Ukraine, on the issues that, uh, in my mind, became absolutely the most important for the future. And I collaborated in the past seven years with the Institute of Sociology of the Ukrainian National Academy of Sciences. We included blocks of questions in annual national surveys in Ukraine to better understand the effects of the war that started in 2014 in eastern Ukraine and the response of Ukrainian society with a particular focus on support for democratic values and institutions that I saw as one of the big targets of the kind of proxy wars that Putin initiated in the Donbass. So with that kind of background, my colleagues in Kiev and I were able to get funding and actually re-interview 
some of the same people whom we interviewed before the war. We interviewed them in late June, early July of this year, so we could compare how the same people were affected. And we recorded this amazing resilience and outpour of support for democracy and freedom in Ukraine. And we hope to continue this research and to keep tracking this group of people. Talk a little bit about the Donbass. It's the easternmost part of Ukraine. Right now, it faces the fiercest fighting. In many ways, it's absolutely remarkable that Ukraine still holds very much the line in parts of the Donbass that it's held since 2014 war. And I just want to say a couple of things about this area. It's a Soviet and Russian Empire industrialized region. It also saw heavy fighting uh, during the civil war after the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. It was integrated uh, as part of Ukraine based on historical traditions and, and economic considerations. And a lot of people, I think, erroneously considered that, well, because Donbass had historically stronger economic ties to Russia and predominantly Russian-speaking population, that it would lean toward joining Russia. And by the way, the same misperception with Crimea. But the surveys that my Ukrainian colleagues conducted regularly indicated there was no overwhelming support for moving toward Russia. So you had about only 25% in the Crimea saying they would want to join Russia, only uh, 35% in the Donbass saying they would consider joining Russia. So these were basically military operations by the Russian Federation that created conflict to seize control over these territories not internal movements. When you say these situations, what you're referring to is that two areas of the Donbass have been called independent regions of Ukraine, right? Well, Luhansk and Donetsk, the two easternmost provinces of Ukraine, were basically Ukraine provinces. And what Russia did was they moved special operations forces into the Crimea in February 2014. They seized control of government buildings, the media and communications. They surrounded Ukrainian military bases and they threatened a massive invasion of Ukraine from the north if Ukrainian forces resisted in the Crimea. And it was such a shocking development that the Ukrainian society and the Ukrainian government basically just thought, okay, you know, let's just let this thing unfold peacefully and we'll all surely can be negotiated, it surely can be changed around, you know. But uh, Russia instituted very tough military control over the territory and immediately it sent often the same operatives who took charge in Crimea to the Donbass. They, they hoped to create that kind of new Russia, Novorossiya, all the way from Kharkiv region to Odessa and Crimea, counting on those uh, Russian-speaking and, importantly, Russian media-consuming populations to change sides. That did not happen. So they were trying to instigate a civil war, in a sense, or instigate... Yes, uh, they basically wanted the same kind of quick militarized takeover, the same way that happened in the Crimea. But after what happened in the Crimea, the Ukrainian society and, and the Ukrainian government 
became aware of what may happen, so they resisted, they struck back. And after those operatives occupied key government buildings in the capitals of Luhansk and Donetsk and proclaimed them to be people's republics, the Ukrainian forces actually pushed back and they almost retook that entire territory. But Russia intervened directly, militarily, to stop Ukrainian retaking of the territories. And that created the stalemate along the 250-mile line of trenches, the kind of World War I-style trench warfare between 2014 and 2022, uh, when the major massive invasion started. When people say this war actually started in 2014, it was the struggle over the Donbass that really was the beginning of that war. Yes, and this is because the struggle over Donbass was an actual fact, not the struggle over Donbass. It was the struggle over Ukraine. If you look at the pattern of operations that Russia undertook after Crimea and how they wanted to seize a larger territory of Ukraine. And then I believe they used the Donbass conflict. If you you look at the Minsk agreements, ceasefire agreements that they signed, the big provision that Moscow pushed was to give those provinces basically veto power over Ukraine foreign policy. So the Kremlin wanted to use those territories as a lever to gain control of Ukraine's entire geopolitical orientation. And when they did not succeed, they undertook major military intervention. Why do you think Zelensky chose the front in the Donbass as the symbolic launching of his trip to the United States? Well, the place where he went, Bakhmut, became the target of most relentless Russian attacks. Horrific battles. Russia throwing waves and waves of Wagner operatives, regular forces, new conscripts. I monitor daily reports on the situation in the Ukrainian front lines. And there were sometimes reports of Ukrainian troops saying that there were so many Russian soldiers dead on the battlefield that they had a hard time aiming farther afield because there were mounds of bodies mm-hmm. in front of them wow. on the battlefield. And that's when Zelensky called the Russian attacks, they're crazy. And they continue, in fact, they have just intensified today. Reports are that when there used to be, say, 10 attacks, 10 assault attempts every day on that Bakhmut area, now there is another 10 or so assaults at night. So we see the stepping up of destruction there. Russia also has been using more artillery. So for Russia, seizing this town of Bakhmut would mean opening up lines of advance toward other parts of the Donbass, toward Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, uh, Kramatorsk being a big industrial center. And so for Ukraine, of course, it also means holding the line successfully and uh, not endangering other parts of Ukraine from more sustained and massive and rapid potential Russian advance. Well, thank you so much. Um, I would like for you, both as a political scientist and as a Ukrainian, to give your initial response of what you see happening with Zelensky's trip to the United States. Well, it was absolutely phenomenal. And so many things came together for me in this visit. I expected 
it to go very well, knowing how Zelensky stood up to Russian aggression, how he uh, has the feel for the society and the public. But at the same time, it even surprised me as somebody who comes from Ukraine, who considers himself Ukrainian, but also an American citizen, and also somebody who is an academic, but also somebody who's a journalist and who saw these developments uh, from the ringside seat. And it did really strike me as potentially a history-making event. Unfortunately, we still have a lot of uncertainty. Zelensky came at a very crucial and if difficult moment from Ukraine. But nevertheless, it brings on tremendous hope. Ukraine showed that it can resist massive Russian aggression. It showed that the society has resilience. It showed that the Ukrainian military is not only very stoic in defending cities that the Russians eventually capture, that it can, but it can retake territories that Russia occupied. But at the same time, we see Russia also learning and a lot more is at stake. In fact, the latest Russian strategy from the last two months reminds me of Russia's assault on the city of Mariupol that, if you remember, came under massive attacks in the early months of the war, except now the whole Ukraine is the target. If you remember, Mariupol had some of the best Ukrainian military units positioned there, and Russian direct attacks were not successful. So instead, they pounded the infrastructure, they destroyed the housing, and eventually there was nowhere for Ukrainian forces to escape other than into the basement of the steelworks where they were surrounded and captured. So now we see the longer term strategy with the whole of Ukraine being like Mariupol. So it's Mariupol 2.0 targeting the whole of Ukraine. Everybody in Ukraine is extremely resilient. You know, I call my relatives and friends and they say how hard it is and how uh, no electricity and cold it is, but, but yet they're resisting. And, and yet you, you wonder if the power grid in Ukraine is degraded, if supplies of ammunition and weapons to the front are hindered, if the treatment of the wounded soldiers becomes impossible or very difficult. And at the same time, when you see Russia conducting mass mobilizations and sending waves and waves and waves of more troops at Ukrainian positions, uh, you cannot rule out that the tide of the war would turn again. We have seen Putin undertaking also a very rare visit outside the country to Belarus to, Belarus. to meet with their president, Lukashenko. Lukashenko is increasingly dependent on Putin ever since 2020, when Putin's intervention saved Lukashenko's regime from mass public protests following severely rigged elections. What we see now in Belarus, uh, they completed two rounds of mobilization. They called up all the reservists. They inserted special tags in their passports. A lot of these people now cannot leave the country. So they can call them up now any minute. Everybody is kind of registered, everybody is on the hook, and penalties for avoiding the draft have been raised all the way up to the death penalty. So we see the Belarusian 
population ready to be corralled into this war very quickly. We also see that Belarus has still significant quantities of military equipment. Uh, some of the Russian military equipment is moving into Belarus. We note the arrival of Wagner mercenary units close to the border with Ukraine. So it is in fact a very tense moment. It's very hard to generate hope now. And this visit by Zelensky goes a long way toward doing it. The fact that we are providing Ukraine with a system like a Patriot missile is very significant. My sense of the way that President Biden said that he wanted to look Zelensky in the eye and he wanted to feel that personal connection, the reason for that is that there is finally perhaps the determination to provide Ukraine with even a stronger military support that would enable it to survive that new Russian strategy and to turn the tide of the war. Just to be clear, the Wagner Group is a professional army that has been deployed in Africa and uh, Syria, I think, right? And, yes. Um, um, and is, is infamous because they use people from prisons? Yes, you're absolutely correct on that. Uh, it was set up, in fact, in 2014, with its mission being to organize and spearhead military operations against Ukraine in the Donbass region. Their training bases are near Russian Special Operations training bases in southern Russia. After Ukraine, they had uh, significant involvement in Syria, Libya, Central African Republic. They have been uh, in several other conflicts. And in this war, yes, there was uh, a very well-known video clip showing the founder and the main funder of this group, Yevgeny Prigozhin going to jails and recruiting prisoners for uh, fighting in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. This is a private army? Yes, a private military company, kind of on shaky grounds with the constitution. So for a long time, Russia did not admit this group existed, but now they do admit it. And Prigozhin was able to get significant uh, additional funding for this group. They apparently acquired much more heavy military equipment, including tanks and artillery. And they're one of the major groups fighting now in the Donbass and attacking Ukrainian positions every day. This is Ukraine 242, a weekly show exploring events and meanings of the war in Ukraine since the Russian invasion. Thank you for listening. I'm Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Network. We are hearing from Dr. Mikhail Alexiev, Professor of International Relations at San Diego State University. This interview was recorded on December 22nd. President Zelensky is in Congress, is obviously trying to find support, but there's a larger sense of meaning about what's being invoked by him as he tried to metaphorically and literally connect Ukraine and the United States as partners and, in a sense, elevate the struggle in Ukraine to an issue that affects the whole world. So how would you define the era that we're in now? As a scholar who studied systemic wars in historical perspective, I, I think it's definitely a very alarming period. And it has a lot of similarities with past pre-global war times.
I have been a long time student of the long cycles theory of world politics that looks at uh, ebb and flow of big wars and peace over the last 500 years and even farther than that. And based on some of the basic dynamics, we are in the sort of deconcentration of power phase. We have stronger alliances, stronger coalitions, more widespread democratic governance around the world. Economic sanctions can work better than in the 30s against Germany and Japan. So if you look at the attack on Ukraine, that kind of territorial expansionist annexation seeking push, we hope that we learn something uh, that would constrain aggressive expansionist behavior of Russia that actually openly and directly, even in Putin's words, challenges the international deconcentration of power so that the, the war that is now a regional war cannot gradually morph into a global war. And we have to be very, very cognizant that every global war started as a regional war. You are saying that you agree with what Zelensky was saying to Congress, that this is a local struggle that affects the whole world? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, if anything, I think maybe he didn't want to make that claim too overarching. He just spoke more kind of based from Ukraine and from the heart and from Ukrainian people. But, you know, I wanted to say that one thing that maybe I wish President Biden emphasized a bit more in his press conference uh, meeting with Zelensky was why this war is important for us as Americans. Maybe because due to my origins in Ukraine, but also my American identity, I can feel both things at the same time. And I, and I think we have this interdependence of fate. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that it's not just some kind of a distant local war somewhere in the world because it involves the rise of a major power that has values that differ from ours fundamentally, that wants an international order based on the same kind of rules of behavior that Putin instituted in Russia, which is domination of the strong by the weak which is uh, corruption and kleptocracy serving the strong and the rich. And it goes fundamentally in the opposite direction of what we go through in our society. Yes, we have problems. Yes, we do a lot of things wrong. But where Ukraine stands is very important for the future of us and the way we will interact with our closest friends like Europe, Asia, Japan, developments in the Middle East, all of these developments will affect us very strongly and, and the future generations. So I believe that it's very important for us in the United States to pay attention to what's going on there. President Zelensky really seemed to be drawing a line in the sand for Ukraine as well. I mean, Ukraine itself has had unclarity about where the country was headed, and it seemed to be when uh, Zelensky was standing in front of Congress the way he was, that he was being very clear that Ukraine has now decided which direction it's going. And I think he actually literally said, there's no turning back. He's absolutely right. And, and it's not just what he says and what he believes. I think one of the reasons why his leadership has been so effective and he's been so strong in articulating these things is because he channels 
the views of the broader Ukrainian society, has this feel for the society. And the views of the society that I register in our opinion surveys speak very much the same way as Zelensky spoke, as you mentioned, that this is, in fact, the watershed. Because if you look at the surveys, you know, I have survey data in Ukraine going back to 1992, a lot of ambiguities about support for democratic institutions, about uh, joining the European Union and NATO, and then very, very clear change between 2021 and 2022. A lot of ambiguity is all gone. It's very, very clear cut. And, and it's all against the backdrop of people registering tremendous suffering, tremendous hardship, tremendous stress. So if you, if you consider those two, how despite all that, there is this clear, clear turn toward the sort of values that our founding fathers cherished and proclaimed and, and that led to us creating those institutions that have made the United States uh, the beacon of the free world for so long, you know, this is all there. This is all very clear now in Ukraine. So it was really a, a, in some ways, a very tortured and difficult evolution towards democracy over the last 20 years. Could you say that's true? Yes, and uh, part of it had to do with the internal dynamics in Ukraine, but also a huge part of it had to do with Russia. You know, Putin has now been in power since late 1999 and in one of the very first interviews that he gave around that time 99 2000 he almost at the time jokingly said that ukraine is not a real state and uh, then in 2004 during the orange revolution when there was a rigged election and he came to support the person who rigged those elections and started interfering directly into Ukrainian politics, creating in many sense all sorts of political divisions and pumping money to corrupt politicians. You know, you, you had that sort of big, big impediment for Ukraine on the path toward more law-based and, and democratic society and state. The difficulty for Ukraine fundamentally has been that it was sort of in between the East European countries and Russia after the end of the Cold War. In East European countries like Poland, for example, we saw societies emerging with predominantly democratic values. And we also saw the emergence of the elites with democratic values. And the combination of the two led to successful and relatively fast transitions to democracy. In Russia, we saw the ambivalent society, corrupt elites, and we saw the regression toward authoritarianism. In Ukraine, we had the society that evolved in much more democratic direction, similar to Eastern Europe. But we had the elites that were more sort of corrupt in a way that they were in Russia. And particularly with the 2014 Euromaidan revolution, I think that was the big watershed. This started changing fundamentally. And now I think we see the consolidation of the elites and the society in that sense. And so the Zelensky government and, and his people and the war, and, and I, I think that this is, this is indeed the, the, the turning point. But you're right, because of these kinds of tensions and contradictions, Ukraine's path has been quite difficult. 
Okay, well, thank you so much. I just want to thank you for uh, keeping Ukraine in the light, for bringing it to the attention. It's very natural for the media coverage to subside uh, after some critical uh, developments happen and people sort of think, okay, you know, this is, we know there's just war going on there. So I, I think it's highly important to bring those issues to the forefront time to time and to look at them in depth. And, and so I just want to thank you for doing so. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you, Ursula. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Ukraine 242. Many thanks to Dr. Mikhail Alexiev, Professor of International Relations at San Diego State University. Dr. Alexiev grew up and worked as a journalist, both in Ukraine and Russia. Today, he is an American citizen. He received his Ph.D. at the University of Washington. In his research, books, and publications focus on wars, ethnic relations, nationalism, and immigration in Russia, Eurasia, with a special focus currently on sociopolitical effects of the military conflict over East Ukraine. I have been your host, Ursula Rudenberg, at Pacifica Network, standing in for your regular host, Anne Levine. Until next time on Ukraine 242, I thank you for listening.